The scripture reading this morning is the letter of Philemon. Philemon 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our, fellow, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in our house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became while in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Good morning, everybody. I get to do one sermon this morning, and I thought, well, how about a book of, you know, that could be covered in one shot, you know, since we do expository preaching and everything like that. Um, It's hard, actually, to decide what you're going to preach if you just have one stab at it. So we're going to start and end a series this morning in Philemon, so that way I can tell people I also took my congregation through a a book of the Bible. (laughs)
I really am so privileged to be able to stand before you this morning and just uh, proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we're all here. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died a sinner's death so that sinners could have righteousness, not of our own, but of Christ Jesus. And now we stand and we approach the throne confidently because we know uh, we have good standing in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would go forward this morning, that it would transform individuals, and that we would see how it transforms us and a transformed culture. We just ask, Lord God, for your word, Philemon, to have its intended effect upon our lives this morning. And we ask this all in the, in the good and, and, and gracious nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of an overview of the book of Philemon. It features uh, three main characters. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who is in prison at the time. And Philemon, of course, he's preaching the gospel. He's in prison because of it. Philemon, he's a wealthy Gentile slave owner who lived in Colossae. He's a city of Colossae. He's also um, a leader, or he has a, a church in his house. So he's probably a leader, if not influential in that. And then the third character is Onesimus, and he's a runaway slave. He's, one, he's owned by Philemon. And, um, and uh, apparently he has stolen some money, and he's run away from Philemon. And, um, uh, and, and that's kind of the, 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 the overall general setting. Roman law suggests that if there is a dispute or a problem between a slave and a master, a slave is allowed to seek a mediator that the, that the master knows, Right? So some have suggested, no, Philemon isn't, a, or I'm sorry, Onesimus isn't a runaway slave. He's actually just settling a dispute between his master, and he's going to seek out Paul as a mediator. There's a couple of problems with that view. Um, number, number one, Paul takes a, a, a tone of pleading for Onesimus. And, and, and he also, he also uh, refers to some kind of an account that is negative on his side, you know, that, that he's offended him in some way, and he offers to actually repay it. So it doesn't look like, um, like, like, there's a, like, like he's playing the role of a mediator. He's, he's more pleading. And the other side is that you know, Paul is in Rome at the time, which is 1,300 miles away from the city of Colossae. And since they didn't have their six-cylinder camels uh, available to them at the time, it would have made more sense for him to seek a mediator, perhaps in the city of Ephesus, which was about 100 miles away, rather than going 1,300 miles away to find a mediator. Um, So you can imagine the, 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 the extent that he would have had to go through to get 1,300 miles away. So most probably, Onesimus did steal some money from Philemon, his master, and most probably, he decided to get as far away out of Dodge as he possibly could, and hopefully go to the biggest city, Rome, um, and, and blend in and, so that he would not be captured. And that's probably the most probable uh, scenario here. Um, and then another interesting point of, of fact is that at some point, Onesimus, as he was trying to run away, Right? He's trying to run away. He came into contact with the Apostle Paul and his ministry, and um, he becomes saved. He becomes converted. He, he gets led to Christ, and he's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, too, um, there's another person who was also converted under Apostle, the Apostle Paul's uh, ministry, and that was none other than Philemon. Right? So Philemon and Onesimus now have these two things in common. They're both converted and led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. 
What are the odds of this happening? That Onesimus runs away from Philemon, 1,300 miles away, and he gets converted by the same guy that converted the guy that he's running away from. Some people call this a coincidence. Some people say everything happens for a reason. In God's kingdom, we say God orchestrates all details. He is uh, exercising providence here. Onesimus ran into the Apostle Paul providentially. So that's the general overview of the book. And it poses, and we're going to press into this a little bit more, an interesting dilemma. Um, and, and it's a dilemma that goes on to wonderfully display how good, how the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection transforms people and transforms their lives. We're really going to see the gospel come through in clarity um, through the book of Philemon. Now, um, before I go any further... I wanted to uh, just kind of get us all on the same page in terms of, of New Testament slavery because we have to have some basic understandings about what that looked like. Overall, I want to be very clear about this. This was a negative thing, uh, uh, but yet it was very different than the way that Americans understand it because of our own history. This is probably why the English translations, if, if most of you guys probably have the word translated from Greek, it literally is, is slave in the Greek, but it's translated bondservant. And I think English translators took that usage of the word so that we, because it would have connected to our understanding of slavery, which is a little bit different than what it was in the New Testament time. So uh, I want you to keep that in mind too. But again, I want to affirm that it was very negative. It's unbiblical, but it was an extremely common part of the Greco-Roman culture. It saw human beings as property. It treated them as an it. It was not exactly humane. And the slave owners managed their slaves through coercion and fear. That was kind of the primary way that they got them to do what they wanted to do, wanted them to do. And in this case, in Onesimus' case, it was, it was lawfully probably expected that if he was returned to Philemon, that Philemon would have him scourged or he would have the, the legal right to put him to death. There's severe penalty for runaway slaves. And if you're not familiar with, the, with what scourging is, think of a whip with strands on it that on the end of the strands would have chunks of bone and, and rock, and that would be used to strike the back. And uh, that would penetrate into, you know, the flesh and rip that out. Not pleasant. So very severe penalties, and that's how slave owners manage their slaves. Um, so as negative and as similar as slavery was to our understanding of it, it's also significantly different and, dare I say, more positive as well. For instance, slavery in the New Testament wasn't race-based, it wasn't based on race or anything like that. About one-fifth of the population were slaves, and people became slaves for a number of different reasons. Anything ranging from just being orphans to being born into it to actually selling themselves to become into slavery. So people would actually sell themselves into slavery. Um, slaves in the New Testament also had the opportunity for education and building skills. Um, in, uh, in our American understanding of... Uh, um, 
in our history, slaves were purposely kept uneducated because then they would be easier to manage and they wouldn't be able to kind of rise up and, and revolt against their owners or anything like that. Not so in the New Testament. Um, it was to the advantage of the slave owner that the slave would be educated and they would have more skills because then there would be a better economic impact for the slave owner on behalf of the slave. So um, they had the opportunity also to, to, to save money, to earn money. And then one of the biggest differences was was that just about every single slave in the New Testament time would be set free at about age 30 or so, either by a fee that they would pay their slave owner or their slave owner would set them free as a gift. So those are some, some, some key differences that kind of distinguish our understanding of slavery from what it was the reality in the New Testament. Ultimately, a slave's experience varied greatly depending on the owner, and some were treated cruelly, some were treated well, some were owned by poor masters, some were owned by wealthy masters. Um, Philemon was a wealthy Christian master. And, um, and, and, you know, Philemon leaves us painfully in the dark about certain details. There's a lot of questions that don't exactly get answered, but if we're just drawing from the clues that we get in the text, I would venture to say that it's probably safe to say that Philemon was probably on the good side of the possible slave owners that you could have. And there's probably some clues that make a case for the fact that Onesimus was kind of a lousy slave. Uh, Paul says he was useless to you. And then to top it off, he steals money from him and he runs away. So again, the Bible doesn't make that explicit for us, so I don't want to assume upon that, but there are clues that lead to that belief. Well, um, I did say that the, that, the, that the details of this story are really kind of set up nicely to, to, to give us a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to get to that right now. How do we see the gospel in the book of Philemon? Um, there's an important passage that I want to point us to. It's Colossians 1.24. This is a key passage in our, in our understanding here of what's going forward. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So what does this mean? What is Paul getting at when he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, it doesn't mean that Christ's one-time sacrifices for sins on the cross was lacking anything or it's not sufficient for all times. He is affirming that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all time and there's nothing that can be taken away from it. There's nothing that can be added to it. But what he is saying is that it was a sacrifice that was meant to be lived out and embodied and, um, and, and fleshed out through a believer's life and lifestyle. So that's what he's getting at. He's saying that I'm embodying the love of Jesus, the sacrifice that he has made on my behalf, I'm embodying that in my lifestyle, and I'm filling that up, and I'm displaying it. I'm putting on display the gospel through my lifestyle, through my behavior. That's what Paul is saying when he's talking about um, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Uh, another way to think about it is that the gospel is ink on a page, and it's skin in the game, Right? It's ink on the page that we study, we memorize, we read about it, but it's more than just a study thing. It's skin in the game. It's lifestyle. It's doing life with other people. 
So um, ink on a page, skin in the game. Both things are valid. Both things are essential components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we see him filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Uh, For starters, he ministers to a runaway slave. Think about that. Under Roman law, if he were to be caught, he would face severe punishment, right? But he says, he's become a son to me and I a father to him. He's taken Onesimus under his wing. He's sticking his neck out in a serious way for this misfit slave who has run away. Uh, that didn't stop him from welcoming, welcoming him. Um, so he's discipling him. And then we see Paul advocating for Onesimus, right? He, he goes to Philemon. He sends this letter to Philemon, and he's advocating uh, on behalf of Onesimus. And don't miss the significance here of Paul sending Onesimus back to, to Philemon, who had legal right to, to, to kill him. That's significant. Don't let that, don't let that escape you. Paul was pleading for a runaway slave who had no right, and he had no legal standing before Philemon to be accepted. He had every legal obligation to put him to death or discourage him or, or something like that. This reminds me, I mean, this is absolutely unheard of. In the New Testament culture, nobody would ask somebody to forgive a runaway slave. This is absolutely out of bounds, right? This reminds us of Romans 5, 7 through 8, does it not? It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this request, think about how it lands on Philemon. Getting a letter like this, and somebody's asking you to forgive this runaway slave, he's asking, uh, Paul is essentially asking Philemon, don't look at him as a runaway slave, look at him as a brother in Christ. Look at him positionally, not for what he has done to you, but where he stands now, and positionally to Jesus. And then more than that, what kind of implications does this have for Philemon, who's trying to run his household What kind of precedence will this set for the other slaves? The way that management happened was that severe punishment had to happen. If you don't punish Onesimus, everything else is threatened to spin out of control and out of order. What about the other slave owners in the area who Philemon was interacting with? And he all of a sudden decides not to punish Onesimus? What kind of a message and what kind of social ramifications would it have for Philemon to forgive Onesimus? It puts, it puts uh, Philemon at a very compromising position. And Paul, uh, here's another way, propitiation. What does that word mean to you? That's a, uh, that, 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 that's a tough theological term. He says this, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. You know what propitiation means? It's a wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's what propitiation is. A sinner, uh, as sinners, the Bible teaches us that our rebellion against God has earned his, his wrath, his anger, and his just and righteous punishment towards us. And in this case, Paul recognizes, yes, Onesimus owes He has an outstanding debt. I'll stand in his place. Paul puts himself in between Onesimus and Philemon and says, any wrong that he's done to you, charge it to my account. 
Isn't that amazing? Paul bears the wrath, in a sense, for Onesimus. Jesus bears the wrath for us. We go back to our Father. We have an outstanding debt. Jesus puts himself in his place, in our, in our place, and he says, any outstanding debt you have, charge it to my account. Think about this, too. He goes on to say, if you consider me, verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Isn't that amazing? You see, I see imputation in that. Receive, <laughs> receive him not on, he's saying, he's saying, don't reject Onesimus based on the bad that he's done to you. Receive him based on my good standing with you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, the bad that he has done, the bad that Onesimus has done to you, Philemon, charge that to my account. And the good that I have done to you, charge that to his account. This is the glory of the gospel, is it not? This is imputation. This is propitiation. Now, put yourself in Onesimus's shoes here, right? Put yourself in his shoes. What would you be thinking? Paul says, okay, you're going back to see Philemon. Here's a letter. Hand it to him. I think he sent him back with Tychicus as well. So I'm not sure that Philemon actually had the letter or not. But nonetheless, he's going back to see the master that he's offended. And for all he knows, he's going to get scourged or killed. Put yourself in his shoes. You've got 1,300 miles to think about what it's going to mean for you to face Philemon, your master. And he doesn't have a Camry. He has a camel. So he's going to take him a little while to get there. What are you thinking? Where is his hope? Where is his confidence as he's going back to Philemon? I'll tell you where it's not. He's not thinking, oh, maybe, you know, I, I shined his shoes the day before I ran away. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll think that that's enough. No, he's not trusting in his status. He's not trusting in his good works. He's thinking to himself, Paul better have a pretty dang good relationship with Philemon because that's the only hope that I have of facing him. And when he approaches Philemon, what is he thinking? I know what I would be doing. I'd be like, here we go, Philemon. I have a letter from Paul. It's from Paul. You're in good standing with him. It's from Paul. At least listen to what he has to say on my account before you make your judgment on me. That's the way that we're going to approach the Father. Sinners will approach the Father. I'm sent from Jesus. Jesus. I'm here on the behalf of Jesus, right? My only hope is that you would accept me and receive me as you would receive Jesus. It's Jesus' status with God that we approach him upon. It's Jesus' righteousness that we approach him on. And everything that Paul models up until this point, and in this story, is showing us the fact that Paul himself has tasted the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? He's tasted this. The only way he can stick his neck out for a misfit slave like, like Onesimus is because he, Jesus welcomed him. Jesus is the righteousness of Paul, not Paul's own righteousness. Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. For all of the other letters that explain the gospel in complex theological terms, we have the gospel in Philemon, not in complex theological terms, but through his life. 
I thought of it this way. If, if you add up, uh, I mean, if you put together all of Paul's writings, right? And if that's a $30 steak, a T-bone steak, imagine that. Imagine how good that would smell as it's grilling on the grill. You take all of Paul's letters that explain all these complex theological terms. If that's the $30 steak, you know what Philemon is? This small, little, itty-bitty book that's often passed over. You know what Philemon is? It's a few pennies of salt and seasoning that makes the the steak taste as good as it smells. Think of it that way. Paul actually puts his money where his mouth is. He models what it looks like to put into practice all of these complex theological terms. And here's the kicker. This, makes, this almost made me fall off my seat when I was meditating on this, and, and, and I know you guys are just going to stand up and cheer. But there was another letter that Paul was writing at the time that he was living out and writing Philemon. Any guesses as to what that letter was? There was another letter that Paul sent with Tychicus and Philemon when he sent them back to the city of Colossae. There's a clue. Colossians. Do you know what that means? Do you see what that means? It means Paul was living out the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus while he was telling the Colossian church, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I hope you guys see that connection there. The same time Paul is writing to the Colossians and saying, I'm filling up what's lacking, he actually is living out his faith in, with, with Onesimus in, as he writes a letter to Philemon. That's just amazing. Paul puts his money where his mouth is. So um, to kind of wrap up here, or to start thinking about where we're going to go from here, I wanted to point out the fact that everything I've said up to this point poses a very controversial dilemma. Here's the dilemma. If slavery is so unbiblical and evil, which it is, why does Paul seem to honor the institution of slavery by sending Onesimus back to Philemon? You may not see this as a problem, but there's a lot of people throughout the history of the church who did see this as a problem. Why would he honor this institution of slavery by sending Onesimus back? Why wouldn't he not just take, take Onesimus and run? Doesn't it seem like he's honoring the institution of slavery by sending Onesimus back to Philemon? After all, Onesimus was useful to him and effective in gospel ministry. Paul probably figures that if he's crazy enough to run away from his slave master, then he might be crazy enough to be a missionary slash church planter, right? (laughs) So, don't miss the, the reality or the fact that Philemon is a very politically charged book with all kinds of political implications to it. The way that we approach ungodly politics and, and living in an ungodly culture with, un, with broken social patterns. And I think Paul's decision to send Onesimus back to Philemon to honor kind of the system of slavery draws a line of distinction that separates two very different approaches that Christians are faced with when we approach ungodly politics, an ungodly government, and ungodly and broken social patterns. What are the two distinctions? 
I'm going to say that one is to protest and one is to proclaim. Those are the two ways that we can approach living in a sinful world. We can either protest or we can proclaim the gospel. And I want to flesh out what I mean by those. And actually, I thought long and hard about a a political equivalent of our day that might help us to relate to this. But in the end, I had visions of my email inbox lighting up with all kinds of controversy. So I thought, I'll leave that to you guys to decide in your community groups tonight. But nonetheless, this letter addresses our propensity to protest. But it teaches us and it compels us to proclaim the gospel in the face of an ungodly culture. Now, I don't want to say, I just want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that Christians never have the role to protest. And that's another thing I want to encourage you guys to talk about. When is it? if ever, the right decision to protest. But in this book, what we see is the Apostle Paul proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, One of the reasons, and I thought about this, and maybe this is going to get really controversial, one of the reasons, or one of the reasons perhaps that the Jews missed Jesus as the Messiah is because they were looking for a divine protester who would come and throw stones at the political system and watch them crumble. But instead, what they got was a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's what they got. The protester tends to see bad government as humanity's greatest problem, right? And therefore, what's the solution? End slavery and end it now. But... Like Jesus, Paul doesn't protest slavery. Instead, he proclaims the gospel. Like Jesus, Paul understands that there is indeed a real slavery issue, a real slavery problem, but it is much more profound than the cultural phenomenon of the New Testament system of slavery. He's talking about, what is it? What is this slavery problem that Paul is addressing I think what he's addressing, actually, is the human heart and how it's enslaved to sin, right? That's the slavery, I think, that he's getting to beneath the surface. And he, Paul understands that this is the problem that gives rise to all other problems, you see. Every single social problem, every single governmental, political problem is essentially an outworking of the human heart's enslavement to sin, You might protest a system, and you might actually succeed and get it to end. But you know what will happen if you don't address the root of the problem? Another evil system is just going to take its place. I think Paul understands that to some extent. He understands that, that the sin nature of man is the problem of all problems. And he knows that protesting doesn't solve that problem. What solves the problem? Proclamation of the gospel solves the problem. Proclamation of the gospel assesses sin is the problem that society faces. Sin is the problem that humanity faces. And that's why he proclaims the good news of the gospel. He doesn't protest against slavery. Again, he does it not just with ink on the page, but he does it with skin in the game. And how does he do this? So I I, I want to walk through a couple of instances here. How does Paul proclaim the gospel versus protesting? 
Well, first of all, he shares the gospel and he leads Onesimus and Philemon to Christ. So now he has skin in the game with these individuals. He has a point of influence and impact with them. A second way, Paul considers reconciliation with believers a higher priority than making a statement against slavery. You guys see that? He puts reconciliation and gospel fidelity as the highest priority that could possibly be. That's a proclamation of the gospel. Another one, he does not play the apostle trump card. Notice that. He doesn't play the apostle trump card. Look through all of Paul's letters. Philemon is one of the only ones where he doesn't, he doesn't address himself as Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus. He says Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And all, throughout all of the letter, he takes a very persuasive tone. He never lays down the law and says, you must end slavery. You must not do this. He even says in verse 8, I can come to you boldly, but I don't want to come to you boldly. I'm going to come to you and appeal to you on the basis of the gospel, and I'm going to let that transform you. I'm going to let that convict you. I'm going to let that confront the cultural indoctrination that you have succumbed to. He's going to make a very plain case that slavery doesn't have a part in the Christian life. He doesn't tell them that. He preaches the gospel. And he eventually, I mean, the, 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 the decision becomes clear for Philemon eventually. So Paul never takes that authoritative trump card persuasive tone. Or um, uh, he doesn't lay the trump card down as the apostle. He comes to him as a brother in Christ and he says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you as a brother in Jesus. His confidence is unmistakably, if Philemon is going to change, he doesn't want him to just, he doesn't want him to just get his way. Paul doesn't just want to get his way. He wants Philemon to actually understand the glories of the gospel, what it means for the lifestyle that he's living. Okay, another one, and this is going to take a little more fleshing out. Paul appeals to the freedom Philemon has in Christ and uses that as a basis for Onesimus's freedom. How does Paul appeal to the freedom that Philemon has in Christ? I'm going to try to flesh this out. He says in verse 18 and 19, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then, you know what's interesting? This is what Paul slips in there. And I won't say, by the way, wink, wink, that you owe me your very life. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Right? Paul talks about the role that believers have in refreshing each other's heart. That's a very high priority for for Paul. As believers, we refresh each other. That's what we're called to. But what's he getting at here? Now, he does admit that Amissimus does have a debt to him. And this can very much seem like Paul is saying, you owe me one, Philemon. You owe me. I led you to Christ Now I'm asking you to free Onesimus. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You owe me one. You're indebted to me. Is that what Paul is saying? It certainly seems like that, doesn't it? I think maybe that's where he's starting, but I think that there's a deeper thing going on here. And here's what I think the deeper thing is going on. He's appealing to the freedom that Philemon has, and he's appealing to the fact that as believers in Christ, we're indebted to one another to love each other. Refresh my heart in Christ. You're indebted to me, Philemon. 
You're a brother in the Lord. I want you to refresh my heart. He says, he points to the position that Philemon is in Christ, and he says that there is an outstanding debt here that you owe me. But it's not just to me. It's, it's a debt that extends to all believers. Okay, Paul says this in Romans 13. 13.8. Owe no man anything, right? And we take that to say, okay, we shouldn't be in debt. But then it finishes, and that's right, we shouldn't be in debt. But then it finishes, and it says, Owe no man anything except what? Except to love them. That's right. So what Paul is saying is that there is a sense in which a believer is never out of debt. There is one debt that is outstanding and will be so throughout eternity. There is one debt that you will never, ever pay off as a believer in Christ. Paul is going to Philemon and saying, There's one debt that you have, Philemon, that you will never, ever be out of. It's the debt of love. We love each other. We're indebted to each other to love. As Christians, we're in debt to one another to love. Why? Because Christ canceled our debt through love. Christ offered himself on the cross. He paid for our debt with his love. So who of you who are in Christ are not indebted eternally to Jesus to love? And if you're indebted to Jesus to love, you are indebted to your brothers and to others around you. You're constantly forevermore in debt to love. That's what the gospel is. The, the, the love of God, the love of Jesus has purchased, secured, and now it utterly owns your soul and you are in debt to love forevermore. That's the one outstanding debt that you have. And this, I think, is what Paul, what, what Paul is getting at with Philemon. Refresh my heart. You're in debt to me to love me. Right? And this is why Paul is not commanding or manipulating Philemon into getting what he wants. He wants him to participate in the freedom that he has to love. Philemon, don't you understand you're free to love? Love me. Fulfill the law of love. He's not, pro- he's not approaching him in a protesting fashion, demanding something from Philemon. Instead, Paul knows he is freed by the gospel to love, and therefore he, lives the, he leaves the decision freely up to him. Right? The whole, the whole letter, the way that Paul approaches Philemon is in a spirit of freedom. I want you to come to this decision on your own. I know you're free in Christ. You will freely make the right decision. I'm not going to lord it over you and force you to make the decision I want you to make. I want to press into this a little bit more. Let me understand. I want to help you to connect how this, how this fits in. Freedom is not being able to do whatever we want. Let me, let me just state that. What is, not, what is freedom not? Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. It's easy to think about freedom like that. But the Bible calls this actually doing everything that you want to do. If you obeyed every single impulse, that's called slavery. Think about it. If you did every single thing that you wanted and if you obeyed every single impulse all the time, your life would be a complete train wreck, would it not? Some of you would be in jail. Some of you would be excommunicated from the church. Some of you would be 500 pounds overweight. Some of you, I don't know, you might audition for American Idol or something. Don't obey all of your impulses and your desires. That's not freedom. The Bible says this is slavery of the worst kind. You're enslaved to your passions and your lusts. Right? The Bible offers us a completely different view of what freedom actually is. It says 
it, it offers us a view and it puts it in terms of being able to be free to do what you ought to do, to do what you should do. And the Bible understands that as sinful people, we don't always want to do what we ought to do. Amen? So doing everything that you want to do, that's not freedom. The Bible says that's slavery. So in light of us not being able to do everything that we want to do, if that's slavery, then, then, then how does Jesus fit into this? I'm going to say Jesus offers us two things at this point. Jesus then defines what we ought to do. What ought we to do? He namely, love. Right? Jesus defines what the greatest form of freedom is. The greatest form of freedom that you can know is knowing what the greatest thing that you can do possibly is. Think about it like this. All of us would say, okay, fine. Freedom isn't doing everything that I want to do. I recognize that there are times where I say, no, I'm not going to eat the apple pie because I want to be healthy. That's the greater good, and I have freedom by saying, no, I'm going to limit one desire to fulfill a greater desire. Wouldn't you guys say that that's freedom? To limit one desire to fulfill a greater desire? Well, what's the greatest desire? What's the greatest good? Is it not to love? Is it not to participate in the love of Jesus? Doesn't Jesus define what the greatest good that we could possibly do actually is? When he comes to us in love and he offers us his life, he says, the greatest good that you could possibly pursue is love and to participate in my love and to, and to, to reflect that and to embody that to the other people in your life. That's the greatest form of freedom because if we acknowledge doing what we ought to do and if the thing that we ought to do is the greatest thing in the whole entire planet— That is the ultimate expression of freedom. But here's the other problem. We don't have a will to do that. And that's why Jesus gives us a new heart. Pastor Charlie's been talking to us about the glories of the new covenant. We will do it means it ain't going to happen. That's right. Okay, so we're free to love. But we also need a new heart that is going to enable us and empower us to love. Amen? Jesus gives us both. He defines what the greatest good actually is, and he gives us a new heart so that we can actually fulfill it. That is freedom, to be able to do what we ought to do in the highest form. Fulfill the law of love. That's what Paul is coming to Philemon and saying. He's saying, Philemon, don't you realize how free you are now in Christ? You have a new heart, and you have the opportunity of refreshing me to fulfill the law of love long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, uh, how does it go? I rose, I woke, went forth, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was what? Free. Free to do what? Free to love God. Free to fulfill the law of love. When When Paul comes to Philemon and he suggests that Philemon refreshes his heart, he's inviting him to fulfill the law of love, which is essentially the law of freedom. The Bible is telling us, brothers and sisters, that being indebted to the law of love is essentially being slaves of freedom. You are a slave now of being free. (laughs) Figure that one out. I'm shackling. God comes to us and says, I'm shackling you. I'm, I'm making you my slave. 
To do what? To be free. I'm, I'm enabling you. I'm empowering you to be free, to love. That's the highest form of freedom. I hope you guys see that. And that's what Paul goes to Philemon, and he says, Philemon, don't you understand? You're free in Christ, and you're utterly free. You were enslaved before, and now you are free. Slavery has no part in the Christian life. Don't you see how the, the writing is on the wall? Don't you see how Paul preaches the gospel? He proclaims the gospel. And there's no decision to be made here, is there? There's no decision for Philemon to make. If you, Philemon, are free, Paul is saying, how much more should Onesimus also be free? How much more should slavery come to an end in your household? But he doesn't actually say that. He gently persuades on the basis of the gospel. I think that's amazing. Not only is what Paul is saying here, but how he actually proclaims the gospel and how he actually represents Christ to Philemon is something we can really learn from as believers in Jesus. So in the end, Paul proclaims. He does not protest in this letter. He proclaims the goodness of the gospel and he appeals to the freedom that Philemon has in Christ. And based upon that freedom, and based upon the fact that Onesimus is now a fellow brother in Christ, welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And then Paul goes on to say, I'm confident that you'll even do more. I think what Paul has in mind is, you should set him free. You should let him come with me and preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel. That's what God has outfitted him for. The letter doesn't tell us whether or not Philemon actually sent Onesimus free, does it? But what do we have? We have the letter. Paul said, read this letter and read it to your house church. If Paul didn't like what he had to say, what do you think he would have done with the letter? Um, I mean, Philemon, I'm sorry. If Philemon didn't like what the letter had to say, what do you think he would have done with the letter? He probably would have pitched it, right? But the fact that we have it in the canon... I'm going to be a glass half full kind of guy and say, I think Philemon took it to heart. I think Philemon set Onesimus free. And that's why I titled the sermon, Philemon, a former Christian slave owner. Slavery was confronted in the Christian household. And Philemon, I think, came to the realization, slavery has no part in the Christian world. That can't, it doesn't jive with the kingdom of God. So that's, I'm just a, a glass-half-full kind of guy. I think that's what happened. At least I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to believe that. So to you, we all find ourselves swimming in a culture that's ungodly, that's evil, and we want to do something big, don't we? We want to, we want to confront the, the, the cultures of the world. We want to figure out where our role is in the Christian world. We want to figure, uh, I'm sorry, in the world around us. We want to figure out how do we make an impact? How do we deal with some of the evil institutions that we find ourselves within? And I would, I would add to you, simply proclaiming the gospel and seeking gospel fidelity above all other things is proclaiming the gospel, and that is having its effect. Confronting culture, confronting individuals, and, and, and change happens inward out. It happens very small, but it happens effectively nonetheless. Here's a quote. The gospel penetrates systems and civilizations, but is never identified with them. In particular, and this is the part I love, 
it is more realistic. It is more realistic than all idealisms and all so-called political realism. Sometimes I think our nature, our propensity to protest is because we think this is going to accomplish something. But what Paul is saying, no, actually proclaiming the gospel is pretty realistic. You address the sinful tendencies of man, if you fill them, if you lead them to a Savior who died for them, and then they begin to see how, how evil what they're participating in actually is through conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's more realistic. Do you see, you see the point? That's actually more realistic than all political idealisms. Yeah, we will do this. We'll set up this program and this and that. That may sound good, but actually it's not going to accomplish anything. It is more realistic than all idealism and so-called political realism, for it attacks the heart of problems, the personal center of personal relations. So, let me close by saying, this letter shows how the gospel transforms individuals. And as it transforms individuals, it confronts and transforms the culture around those individuals, both with ink on the page and with skin in the game. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And again, I just pray that it would have its intended effect on us. Lord, I pray that we would help, be helped to see how precious it is to live in light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to be members of the body of Christ. I pray that we would be proclaimers of this gospel and that that would be our strong confidence as it was for Paul. We ask God for wisdom to know how to go forward from here. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.